We just sang about faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Borrowing a quotation from the book of 1 John, what a precious and remarkably strong teaching that is. And it's good for each of us to be reminded of that as we set forth at this first day of the week on a week in which, by the blessing of God, we should be able to serve Him, to influence others about Him for the cause of the Master. It is good that God certainly has allowed us the privilege of assembling this evening. These songs that we've just sung, the prayer in which we've engaged, all of this has indeed been an edifying and encouraging set of activities. At this point in the lesson, as you know, we would focused now for the next little while on at least a section of the Word of God, and it'll be drawn from the book of Hebrews, as you may have noted in the reading just a moment ago. This past week, as we have been reading continuously, of course, throughout the Word of God, we now have advanced really through the book of Hebrews, but we completed that this past week. And now we'll be, of course, journeying into another one of the New Testament books. But in our reading of Hebrews, you might appreciate that there were several occurrences of a word that we really will use as partly for the basis of our study tonight. It really is a word that occurs powerfully in the text of the evening, as well as many other times in that New Testament epistle known as the Hebrews. The bottom of that slide will at least set us on a course for the topic of the evening. Does reason, does logic, does the capability of using your thinking skills and mind and our analytical abilities, do those have any part to play? in a proper service, in a proper response to that which God has revealed. Frankly, there are many in our world who would be quick to say the answer must be no. They feel as if any opportunity on the part of man to conclude, to reason, to draw any conclusions based on his own intellectual abilities must be far less than that which revelation from heaven would be. And therefore, there could be no opportunity to appreciate that standing as a part in judgment on that final and great day. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, we're going to ask that question rather clearly. And we're going to allow the Word of God to provide us an answer. As we do that, may I say some initial remarks might well be in order at the outset of the lesson this evening. These remarks, as you can see, will not only attach to the text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago, but will build a rather remarkable set of appreciations on it. You and I know well that faith is a highlighted matter, so much so, that we're told in Hebrews 11 verse 6 the following, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The inspired writer, as he put before the individuals of that day and all of us by inspiration, drove home in powerful appreciation the absolute essentiality of faith as the New Testament sets it forth. There is no compromise or room for any absence of that and yet for there to be salvation. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. You and I know well that the pleasing of God is, of course, a basic and fundamental matter in that it is so essential and important. We remember how that Noah and Abraham and, yes, so many others were able to affirm the fact that they lived in a way to be pleasing to God. We each remember about Enoch, do we not? That marvelous reflection upon his life, of all things it might be said, he walked with God, Genesis 5, 24. This gentleman Enoch, 
He walked with God. He did so in such a fashion that then the very example of Him is echoed again in the book of Jude in the New Testament. When you and I think then about the matter of faith, we know that it's highlighted in so many places as a thorough and descriptive matter of what is to be your life and mine. We walk by faith and not by sight, borrowing the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And wasn't it Paul in Galatians 2.20 that would say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ liveth in me, for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The guiding motivation, the powerful incentive that was and is the matter of faith. Perhaps it would be then important for us to ask, can we define it? What is this biblical faith of which we've spoken? Does God, in fact, define it for us? The human family has so often provided its own definition. There are many religious leaders who, over the past half millennium or so, who have set forth what they consider faith to be. And, of course, for each one of us, we'd be quick to say, we want God's definition. And we want to, thus saith the Lord, with respect to this essential matter. Hebrews 11.1 is, of course, a passage that speaks so much about this attribute of faith. A moment ago, we heard it read. Let's consider it again. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The King James rendering has put before us these terms, and I would invite you to notice some definitions. That word substance that occurred in the original language as it was originally penned by the inspired writer. That word substance, as you can see, literally has to do with that which is of a foundation. Furthermore, that which is firm, that which has actual existence. Many of the ancient writers, in fact, even extra-biblical ones, who would employ the usage of that word, did so in a concrete fashion as it made reference to what thoroughly had existence and thus could serve as a foundation for activity in one way or another. The inspired writer has made use of it here and done so in a way to help us understand faith. There are those in our world who would look with a bit of humorous feature upon you and upon me. There are those in scientific circles and otherwise who would assert that there is no bedrock foundation upon which there is a needful thing known as faith. They would be quick to say we need scientific methodology and we need the reason that could only be built upon that. And they would often, of course, characterize you and me in far more questionable ways. But you'll notice here faith is identified as a firm thing, a thing that does exist in terms of that to which it looks. You and I know well that that which we see about us in this life, as important and significant as that might be, our eyes are fixed upon a realm and on a place and on a marvelous matter which, of course, isn't to be touched with these physical things now. Paul, more than once to the Roman brethren, did he not talk about, we're saved by hope, he wrote, Romans 8.24. And the notion and the characteristic of that he highlighted in 2 Corinthians 4. For what we see, there's no reason to hope for it. But rather, he said, we hope for that which we see not right now. Isn't that a grand and buoying force in your life and in mine? This characteristic of faith leads us to another term the inspired writer employed. 
last part of Hebrews 11.1, the evidence of things not seen. That word evidence, as you can see, literally has to do with that which has been tested or proved. And almost immediately comes to mind then the characteristic of the lesson this evening. Something that's tested and proved. You and I know that when proof, that word is employed, a mathematician, when you set out to prove a theorem, you're able to use axioms and circumstances that lead invariably to the truth of that which is considered. There is no possibility to deny it. There's no possibility to question it. It has been proven. In a similar way, you notice with me that here the evidence, that which is tested or proved of things not seen. Our faith is a vibrant and vital matter. It is an issue of incredible power and influence. And the meaning that attaches therefrom is truly a magnificent thing. Perhaps all those leads us to consider in passing just a few of these words. I would draw your attention to them again. Words like existence and the actualness of it. Words like assurance and words like evidence and proved. God, you see, does indeed want you and I to utilize the thinking, the intellectual powers He has given us. And in fact, if we will allow them to operate appropriately, they should lead even more strongly to a conviction of who He is, a conviction to that which is the truth of Christianity and to a devoted lifelong service of it. Wasn't it God who through Isaiah said, "'Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord.'" Borrowing the language of Isaiah 1.18. That word reason literally means to seriously consider. To give thought to, toward an understanding of allowing it to develop into proof and to even greater understanding. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, one of the words that we seemingly encounter so often in the book of Hebrews is this one. I'm sure we've each noted as we read through it, and that's especially true if you will read the book aloud and listen to the words as they recur and appear within it. Words like therefore, words like wherefore, they frequently occur in the biblical narrative, and that certainly is also true in the book of Hebrews. To cast a bit of spotlight upon it, you might notice in the English, the word therefore occurs in the King James translation of the Bible well over 1,100 times. Think about that. Well over 1,100 times. And the word therefore identifies the fact most often that there is a conclusion being reached based on the premises set forth previously, based on the circumstances previously indicated. Here is a natural and undeniable and inescapable conclusion. Wherefore, that word too occurs frequently. I simply chose to summarize at the bottom. The original Greek word that is frequently translated as either therefore or wherefore occurs by itself well over 630 times in the, in the original Greek language in the Bible. Maybe those thoughts alone are enough to tell us God does want you and He does want me to employ our thinking abilities in light of the revelation of His Word and appreciate directly what the conclusions are to be. God does not want us to leave our reason at the door. 
He doesn't want us to come into services or, yea, in other aspects of service to Him and leave our analytical abilities outside. He rather wants us to employ them in light of the ability that we should have to use them to His glorification. As you transition to the next slide with me, we will begin to develop that again, utilizing some of these features of the Hebrew letter. And I thought that we might well begin by identifying a bit more thoroughly that word that again occurs so very often, as I mentioned a moment ago, occurring well over 600 times. Literally, that word is a conjunction in the Greek language. And it does indicate that there is an issue, here is a truth, that occurs as a consequence of matters previously asserted. The Bible is a marvelous presentation of truth, isn't it? And God does want you and me to think as we read those things and to let them be a source of sustenance and strength relative to our faith. I ask you to develop some of these thoughts with me. I entitled the lesson, Logic Reason, as two parts thereof. That word logic, as it's frequently utilized in the day in which you and I live, that word literally means that discipline which attempts to distinguish correct from incorrect reasoning. Isn't that what we've been discussing, at least in one fashion to this point tonight? Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. There is a correct reasoning in light of that which God has revealed. And there, of course, would also be incorrect reasonings. And God wants you and He wants me to appreciate the distinction and to follow that which is correct. May we say, in light of that correct reasoning, look at some easy initial considerations. There are some absolute explicit statements in the Word of God. Wasn't it true that God told Noah, you build an ark, Genesis 6.14. And He even divested to Noah the characteristics of what the dimensions were to be. That would have been easy for Noah to understand. I'm supposed to construct an ark. And I'm supposed to build it, yea, so long and so wide and so high. And I'm supposed to bring aboard the various animals. There's a flood of waters coming. As that statement was directly asserted, easy to understand that which was the message of God to Noah. But consider yet another example. When God, in fact, spoke through the vitality of the burning bush, Moses, you go and bring my people out of Egypt. That again sounds like it would have been easy to understand. There would have been not much cause to consider ambiguity with relation to it. Maybe as a third example, Matthew 28, 18 to fall and to the end of that chapter, when the Lord said to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's Mark, Mark's version of that same great commission. All of those things, again, allow us to see the logic attached to them perhaps isn't that grand in terms of what's demanded of us. But what about some other passages? And what about some other appreciations in the words of the New Testament? May we not forget our logic and our need to seriously consider that book of God. This next slide will set some of these ideas before us. A passage I'm sure that we've each already raced to in our mind might well be this one. It was those words famously presented in 2 Timothy 
God, through Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As often as you and I have reflected upon the closing statement of that passage, rightly dividing the word of truth, obviously suggests that it is possible to improperly divide it. It is obviously possible to unrightly divide it. Because here there was an emphasis on a right division of it, a proper handling of it. We each know so well throughout the history of the human family how that many have in fact handled improperly God's Word. Many have used it to teach what it does not nor never did teach. And many even today assert from it what it never with proper division has taught. No wonder the impressive need to rightly divide it. Doesn't that directly assert the needfulness of correct logic and proper reasoning with respect to its salient statements? It is true that with respect to that, let's use some examples. One of the first ones it seems that you and I could readily consider is drawn from a set of parallel considerations. Revisit with me, if you will, the scene of the temptations of our Master recorded both in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. We remember on that occasion Jesus was tempted by the devil. Turn these stones into bread was the first one. And then we recognize some additional ones, one of which was this. The devil, in fact, took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and shall bear thee up, lest thou at any time dash thy foot against a stone. Here was the devil quoting Scripture. May we observe. That text is found in Psalm 91. The devil himself was actually utilizing Scripture and using it as a means of tempting the Master himself. At this point, isn't it fascinating to observe? Jesus didn't just blindly accept what the devil said that that text meant. The devil said this means you should cast yourself down and it will be an element of assurance with respect to your proof because again, God will not allow you to dash your foot against a stone. But you'll notice Jesus in fact made an indirect teaching that the devil's usage of that text was not proper because he quoted another Old Testament passage drawn from Deuteronomy 8 and that one elaborated on and modified the Psalm 91 passage in such a way that the Lord knew the foolishness and folly of casting Himself down, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What an interesting consideration. That means that with regard to the Old Testament, even one couldn't just blindly take its passages because the devil was twisting it. And he was using it in a perverted fashion. Today, can he still use words of Scripture in a perverted way? Can he still try to use them to teach what they really do not teach? We know the answer to be the affirmative by far because legions are falling under the trap of such an activity. Here was a case where the Lord was wise enough with proper and right division of the Old Testament to know that the Psalm 91 passage did not mean what the devil was telling him that it meant. May you and I understand today that we too must have a working appreciation by virtue of our understanding and the logic that goes with it so that we can rightly divide the sacred text. 
perhaps as you consider onward. What about that scene, that commandment found in the words of Paul himself? Near the close of the First Thessalonian letter in First Thessalonians 5.21, wasn't it there that Paul writing as he closed up that First Thessalonian letter, he said, prove all things, hold to that which is good. Now that's a commandment. It is etched in the language of the other commandments found in that closing chapter. And we notice there it says, prove all things. That means to test them, to examine them, to closely scrutinize them. And that means that you and I are, of course, taught that we must use this book by right division. Once that which has been proved is set before us, he says, then cleave to what's good. Hold to it tenaciously, grasp onto it, which is the meaning of the original word. When you and I recognize then we've been commanded to prove all things, to utilize a proper division of the sacred text to ascertain what is and what is not the will of God. Those kind of passages do remind us that our faith is built upon the marvelous wonder of what is God's revelation. Those appreciations perhaps bring us to these next dual sets of passages. First of all, in Mark chapter 11, when we start asking about the appreciations of reason or the mankind's usage thereof in the words of the Bible, there are a number of passages, and perhaps only a few need be mentioned this evening. In Mark chapter 11, you may recall there was a scene in which Jesus, not long before that, had in fact undergone some tremendous things that agitated quite a few Jews. He had gone into that temple. He had turned over the money changers' tables. He had driven out the animals by making a whip. At that point, there were some who came before Him and said, By what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you the authority such that you're able to do this? After all, the other religious teachers of the day, the various Sadducees and Pharisees and others, the rabbis had certainly not done any such thing. At that point, the Lord said, I'll ask you a question as well. And if you'll answer mine, I'll answer yours. I'm paraphrasing, of course. At that point, the Lord asked this question. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or of men? Straightforward question. Did you notice, though, in the verses that followed, that they did rely upon their sense of reason? They reasoned as follows. If we say that it was from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you then obey it? Why didn't you subscribe to it? On the other hand, if we say it's of me and the people, consider John a prophet, and they, in fact, will not give us consideration. We will lose influence with them. As they utilize that attribute of their own reason, they then said to Jesus, We cannot tell. Jesus said, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. We notice there was an attempt on their part to use some reason. Sad to say they were too motivated by their desire to never give credit to the Lord, but to be moved by the popularity of the people. Maybe another example is in the 12th chapter, or rather the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. On that occasion, Paul presented a masterpiece of logical consideration. It all had to do with the resurrection, didn't it? 
There were some who were of the express opinion that there is no resurrection. Paul proceeded to reason with them as follows. We won't notice all the elements of his presentation, but there were many of them. He said, if there be no resurrection, then that means Christ isn't raised for one thing. And if Christ isn't raised, then that means all of us apostles are false teachers because we preached He was raised. And furthermore, he said, if we're false apostles and false teachers and false preachers, that means all of you are still in your sins because we preach that through His blood you have been forgiven as you obeyed the gospel. One by one, what a powerful house of conclusions was erected based on the logical presentation of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and following. Suffice it to say that as you and I utilize the words of the Holy Word of God, God expects us to rightly divide it and to in fact approach it with the logical capabilities He's given us and to draw proper and right conclusions based upon it. As we close that particular slide, even Jesus highlighted in Matthew 23 some of the failures of those Pharisees in light of the very matter before us this evening. Remember that they gave the greatest heed to the tiny matters of the law, and Jesus said you shouldn't have ignored that. But they had ignored great things like righteousness, judgment, mercy. Maybe in fairness to all those things as you come to that top of that next slide. Consider with me for just a few moments a few of the attributes of the church. The blessed body that you and I love so dearly. The marvelous body to which Christ added us at the time of our obedience to the gospel. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 16, we have an explicit statement to the effect you and I are to give upon the first day of the week and to do so as we have been prospered. A straightforward and powerful commandment and one that you and I get excited about following because we love the thought of how God can utilize those funds to bring about His will. That's an explicit commandment and fairly easy to appreciate, isn't it? But to that we could add texts like Revelation 14.12 and Revelation 22.14, both of which highlight in our thinking, Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That's the Revelation twenty-two fourteen passage. Doing His commandments is essential then, isn't it? As you and I then seek to do those commandments, there are places in which the appreciation of the Bible brings us to realize our own conclusions often must be directed rightly. We must appreciate that sometimes the explicit statements of the Scriptures turn into implicit ones, and yet God expects us to understand and to conclude and to follow what it is that He has given to us. In Hebrews chapters 7 and 8, one particular consideration of that matter dealing with the priesthood of our Savior. Jesus, of course, was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the language of the inspired writer's elaboration of that point, he reaches conclusions that were never explicitly stated in the Old Testament. Since Jesus, for instance, was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi, he could not serve as a priest on earth after the, Levit the Levitical order. 
It would not have been possible. Although that explicitly isn't stated in the Old Testament, it implicitly is all over it. And the New Testament writer makes that point so abundantly plain. Perhaps another example to that effect, in Matthew 22, verse 29. Wasn't it true on that occasion that Jesus, as He had discussion with some Sadducees, it was to them, as they were discussing the resurrection, that He made the abundant point, Ye do greatly err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Remember, they had attempted to use their appreciation of the Old Testament, but they had reached an improper conclusion. And Jesus said, you don't know the Scriptures. When God then gives us things in the Bible, even if it demands an implicit conclusion on our part, if it is that which follows logically and that which follows thoroughly based on His revealed will, then that means that's just as much a part of His will from heaven as if He had stated it explicitly. No wonder you and I must rightly divide it. And no wonder you and I are then called upon to recognize we shall stand before the God of heaven in judgment based upon the appreciation of those thoughts and ideas. As you and I give some additional thoughts to them, let's just list again a few that begin very easy to understand. May we ask it like this. Does the Bible teach that a believer must be baptized in water in order to have his or her sins washed away? As you and I think about that question, the nature of what surrounds it, notice, this is very easily placed in a matter of logic. That statement is either true or it's false. There is no middle ground. Either a person must be baptized in water to have his or her sins forgiven or else he must not be. It's a one way or the other. You and I know well what the New Testament teaches. It asserts that logical statement from the point of view of the New Testament is absolutely true. Might you and I now ask this question? What about those who question that logic? What about those who, with a degree of comfort, assert, I don't see it that way? they are still going to have to stand before the God of heaven in judgment and give answer to what this book says, not what they think it says. God said, again in Mark 16, our Master Himself, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. When Peter spoke to those on Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2, verse 38. Later on, we notice in 1 Peter 3, 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Statements like that one and those others we've noted, have let us appreciate, haven't we, that there is a powerful logic attached to the presentation of Holy Scripture. You and I can recognize that that logic then is a matter that should lead to you and me in a proper response. Notice, even if we fail to respond, that does not change what the Bible itself sets forth. Perhaps as you close that slide, you'll notice that there at this point is 
many in our world who would reason as follows. And I'd like to ask you to think with care about the way I'm going to attempt to, to pose this. You and I have just noted that without doubt and without question, the Bible does set forth the essentiality of baptism for remission, for forgiveness of sin. But suppose there's someone out there in the community and they say, well, there is an individual who absolutely uses passages and he teaches me that I must be baptized. I know another person. He too is a member of a religious organization. That person, and I have asked him with honesty, and he tells me I do not need to be baptized in order to have my sins forgiven. He tells me all I must do is assert a matter of belief, and that is plenty sufficient. This inquisitive person now asks this. Here's one person tells me I do need to be baptized, and he's a Bible believer. And here's another one telling me just the opposite. They both appear to be good men to me. They both appear to be very earnest and sincere in their thinking. And so apparently both must be right. And hence, I think I'll just stay the way I am. Countless thousands in our world are in a predicament much like that. But now let's ask from the logical standpoint of it. That was a straightforward statement of logic earlier. The law of the excluded middle says there is no middle ground. Either the statement is true or it's false. That means one of those two men had to be wrong. Both of them could not possibly have been right. It's logically impossible. And yet here's this inquisitive person who now is on the horns of a dilemma and he's taking the wrong approach. Obviously what he should have done was appreciate the nature of the source and ascertain which one of the two was correct and which one wasn't. As you think about that approach, notice again how often again that could be multiplied in relation to various statements of the Word of God. That one, we just use baptism as the guide. Baptism as the matter before us. You and I could extend it like this. What if we, in the time remaining, quickly make mention of just one or two additional matters? You and I could ask it like this. What about an individual contemplating remarriage? What does the Word of God have to say about this? Is anybody free to remarry? Is any individual, regardless of previous sta statute or state in life, able by blessing of God to enter into a state of marriage? If not, then who are the ones eligible for that circumstance? I've simply stated it like this. Would it be fair to say based on that which is the presentation of the Word of God, that the only individuals that the Word of God permits to enter scripturally into a remarriage, that is to say an additional second or more marriages, is one whose previous spouse has died, or one who in fact was the innocent party, and thus is divorced as a result of fornication on the part of another, a previous spouse. If you and I now appreciate it, might we again say that again is a logical statement. It is either true or it's false. There is no third option. If you and I, by proper appreciation of the Bible, have recognized the fact that is what the Bible teaches, then the matter is closed and it is settled. No other grounds for remarriage are thus acceptable. 
in light of all of those things, you'll notice a number of passages I've asked you to consider. Jesus stated it like this in Matthew 19, 9, "...whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery." We know that that sin of adultery is, of course, one of those cataloged in passages like Galatians 5, in which we there see that those will not be allowed to enter heaven. That's serious business then, isn't it? You now notice so easily that we could perhaps come to one final consideration. What about the usage of a mechanical instrument of music as a part of worship? It has caused countless divisions and controversies and discussions through, throughout the decades. And yet we still recognize its appearance. We still recognize that there are those who adamantly demand it. Our question as always continues to be, as you and I approach by virtue of the Word of God, we ask, and I've stated it like this, does the Bible teach that the employment of such is an acceptable matter. If it does, you and I then would stand wrong if we forbid it. But if it does not authorize it, and if it does not set that forth as a matter pleasing to God, then we must not endorse it, condone it, or approve it even minimally. You and I know as we look, we find admonition and encouragement in regard to singing. As those passages are listed, and you'll notice I've set several of them before us. I've chosen to list for us those that remind us if we go beyond that which is the revelation of Scripture, we thus put ourselves in a position of having not the doctrine of God. Second John verses 9-11. As you and I have thought about the logic attached and the reasoning that relates to an employment and understanding of the Scriptures, isn't it a wonderful thing that God has blessed us in the way that He has? The animal kingdom doesn't have the capability of intelligence that you and I do. They don't have the capability of intellectual response. Instinct is what guides them. But you and I have something far more powerful than instinct. We have the understanding and the capability to rightly divide and to reach logical conclusions. And in so doing... Why don't we close our lesson by remembering one of the statements found in Romans chapter 1. As Paul addressed the Roman congregation, he said in verse number 20 about the nature of what it was that should have prompted their obedience and what it was that should have prompted their service. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Didn't Paul know then that by virtue, if in no other way, they should have been able to tell from the attributes of what's around them that there is a God and that He is a magnificent Creator. And they should have at least reached a conclusion of His existence based on that. And yet... Oddly enough, there are many who in folly, despite the creation that's about them, they still are unwilling to admit that there's a God. That very same God they're going to address in judgment someday. Revelation 4 verses 10 and 11 tells us, and then it'll be too late to try to confess then. They will have to make an admonition of His greatness, but it'll be too late to have any sins forgiven. 
tonight as we've at least thought about reasoning and logic. I'm sure we've each been impressed with, again, how straightforwardly the Bible reminds us of things like these. And may we use them as we daily read His Word that we can rightly divide it and use it correctly. This very night, there may be someone in the audience who at this point has never rendered initial obedience to the gospel call of invitation. Perhaps at this point you have heard lessons and sermons and you've even read portions of the Bible yourself on many occasions. But to this point you have kept Jesus at bay. You've never opened the door to let Him in and you've never proceeded to investigate seriously a pursuit of His way. Tonight, why don't you become a Christian? That's the only way to stand right before God. It's the only way. Because you and I have the words, and Jesus Himself said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6 verse 63. Tonight, if you need to render that initial obedience, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that, what a glorious day for you it indeed would be. If you need to return to your first love, having once been faithful but no longer are, why not come back and approach to the very faith that is the bedrock of what is an, a, an approved life before Him? If we could help you that way tonight by praying to God on your behalf, as you can repent and confess those things to Him, He's promised to forgive if this very night we could be of assistance in either of these ways, we'd be delighted to help. We'd like to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.